0: Samuel Argall had explored the Chesapeake more than anyone except for John Smith. He'd discovered and named the Delaware Bay, and he'd surveyed the coast as far north as Cape Cod. In September of 1612, he returned to Virginia as an admiral of the colony. He fixed ships that were in disrepair, and he joined in Dale's expeditions against the Powhatan. But he also became a good friend to Yopassus of the Padawomac tribe, an old acquaintance of John Smith. They traded for corn, explored the entire length of the Potomac River, and enjoyed generally friendly relations. It's these connections that helped Argall put an end to five years of Powhatan War. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. While Pocahontas was visiting friends among the Patawomans, Argall asked Yopacis to help kidnap her and trade her for English prisoners held by the Powhatan. Yopacis was reluctant, saying that the Powhatan would attack his people in retaliation, but Argall replied that the English would defend them. Furthermore, Argall said that if Yopacis refused to help him, they'd be neither brothers nor friends. So, Yopasis agreed to talk to his brother, who was the Werowance of the Padawomix, and his brother thought that it was a great opportunity to gain an advantage over his enemies, the Powhatan. Yopasis himself was still reluctant to take part, but he agreed. So, one of Yopassus' wives invited Pocahontas aboard Argall's ship. The next morning, they took her back to Jamestown, and Argall sent a message to Wahun Seneca saying that he would only give her back if her father gave back the Englishmen and weapons that he had stolen, as well as some corn. This was a crushing blow for Wahun Seneca. Forget the fact for a minute that the daughter he loved had now been kidnapped by his enemies. This was the event that would show all of his dominions that he couldn't beat the English. He couldn't get her back by force. He'd spent the last five years responding to military raids with hit-and-run attacks. He'd been waging a war of attrition because he simply couldn't win in open combat, but open combat would be the only way that he could get his daughter out of the fort at Jamestown. Worse, if Wahun Seneca responded too readily to English demands, he'd show his weakness to the world. The vast majority of tribes in Tsunekomoko only paid tribute to him because he was stronger than they were, and if he showed his weakness, the entire empire would fall apart. The only thing he could really do was stall, so he didn't respond for three months, and after that time, he sent some broken weapons to Jamestown, and said that he'd send 500 bushels of corn as compensation for the tools and weapons that had been stolen and broken. He said that if he got his daughter back, he'd be forever friends with the English, but Dale refused the offer. Dale had the upper hand, and he was going to use it. So Dale sent a response to Wahun Seneca, saying that his shipment of weapons didn't begin to account for everything that had gone missing. Dale said that it was Wahun Seneca's choice whether he would establish peace or continue his enemies, and if he wanted to be friends, he would have to agree to all of Dale's demands. If Wahun Seneca wanted his daughter back, he would have to show all of Tzinnikamoko that the English were now in charge. There would be no compromise. If Wahun Seneca wanted anything, he would have to fully submit to the English. Wahun Seneca didn't contact them for another year. Dale put Pocahontas in the custody of Alexander Whittaker, an esteemed pastor and Cambridge educated Protestant theologian, so she could learn to read and write and could learn about the Bible. To emphasize the Puritan nature of this group of colonists, it's worth noting that Whittaker's father was John Penn's close friend and confidant. Whitaker himself was deeply impressed with Pocahontas as a person, and he came to respect the Indians through his interaction with her. He hoped that the natives could be converted, and under his guidance Pocahontas spent time with many of the colony's more respected citizens. One of these was John Rolfe. After a few months of no contact from Wahunseneca, Seneca, Dale decided to assess the state of Powhatan relations. Clearly, Wahun Seneca was stalling, and Dale was tired of waiting for answers, so he provoked a fight. He sent an ultimatum to Orpox, demanding that the terms of Pocahontas' return be met immediately. And the Indians responded that Wahun Seneca was three days' journey away, but that Opie Congenu would accept his demands on Wahun Seneca's behalf. They then indicated that Opie Congenu was in full control of Senecomoco anyway. So Dale was pushing Wahun Seneca to back down, and Wahun Seneca was still trying to deflect the pressure. As the English went to shore at Orpox, a group of warriors attacked, and so they killed them, burned the nearby villages, and took their corn. Wahun Seneca sent a message the next day saying that he would return the weapons, but that the English living in his territories had fled because they were afraid Dale would kill them. They hadn't been kidnapped, but they had left voluntarily, and Wahun Seneca would allow them to remain if they wanted to. The next day there was a standoff, but neither side wanted to shoot. The English didn't need to shoot first, and the Powhatan knew they couldn't win in an open confrontation. So instead of fighting, two of Pocahontas' brothers came forward and demanded to see their sister. And the English agreed they found her in good health, and they promised to persuade their father to redeem her and conclude a firm peace forever. John Rolfe led the delegation to negotiate the peace, but instead of Wahun Seneca, the Indians sent Opiconganu. Through Opiconganu, Wahun Seneca sent a message saying that English weapons and tools would be returned, along with some corn, that Pocahontas could continue to live with the English, and that he would return any English people who ran away in the future. Wahun Seneca also said that the English could punish any of his people who committed crimes against them in the future. He was beaten. Dale accepted his terms, but with the threat that he would come and burn villages after the harvest if his promises weren't fulfilled. But Wahun Seneca kept his promise. The Powhatan Empire had collapsed. Wahun Seneca's less loyal tribes were now willing to trade with the English and enter into peace agreements, and his more loyal tribes, including the Kikitans, Nansimans, Appomattox, and Powhatans, had been either defeated or subjected to devastating raids. New English settlements were also beginning to appear outside of Jamestown. This was the end of a war. Five years of raids, ambushes, sieges, massacres, village destruction, livestock, and crop destruction, and the peace meant that the settlers might finally be able to become self-sufficient. The English tried to offer reasonable terms to the Powhatan. For instance, when negotiating peace with the Chickahomines, one of the more loyal Powhatan tribes, the English assured them freedom of movement and gave each delegate a tomahawk, and some copper. At this time, Pocahontas was baptized, and she married John Rolfe. She took the name Rebecca, which was the name of the biblical woman who had been the mother of two peoples. It was a fitting name because she had already had one Powhatan son, who many of the tribe's descendants today claim as an ancestor. Her half-English son, Thomas Rolfe, eventually married another half-English, half-Powhatan, and became an ancestor to many of Virginia's first families, which is the term for a group of families who acted as the leaders and elites of Virginia throughout the colonial period and even after the Revolutionary War. So Pocahontas truly was the mother of two peoples. Wahoon Seneca sent his blessings, and Hamer and Savage went to meet with him. He greeted Savage warmly, but chastised him for not coming back for four years. Savage was, after all, Wahoon Seneca's child in exchange for Namantak. And Namantak, by the way, had converted to Christianity and killed Machumps over the course of the war. Savage and Hamer told Wahoon Seneca that Pocahontas was happy enough with the English that she wouldn't want to leave. And Wahoon Seneca simply laughed and said that he was glad to hear that. Things were going pretty well until Hamer and Savage asked Wahunseneca Seneca for his youngest daughter to go visit Pocahontas, and said that Dale wanted to marry her when she was old enough. They said that Dale had seen what a wonderful wife that Pocahontas made for Rolf, and he would like to solidify the peace even further. Wahun Seneca was justifiably disgusted. He told them that he didn't need the peace to be any more solidified than it already was, and that he didn't wish to give the English two of his children at once. And he said that he'd already gotten a much better offer for her from someone else anyway. This takes on a darker tone in light of accusations made by descendants of the Mattapone tribe, who say in their oral histories that Dale had raped Pocahontas, Now, I don't know whether or not that's true, but regardless, Dale had stepped way beyond the boundaries of propriety and well into self-serving exploitation. Wahoon Seneca was feeling old, and he didn't want to fight anymore. He wanted peace, but he wasn't stupid, and he wasn't weak. He didn't want closer social or political ties with the English, and he wasn't reconciled to living alongside them in perpetual friendship. Wahun Seneca would do what he needed to keep the peace, but he wasn't inclined to give away one of his daughters just because Dale wanted her. Then William Parker, an old renegade, said that he wanted to return to Jamestown, and Wahoon Seneca was furious. The English would take his daughter but refuse to even leave one of their own men? Wahun Seneca told Hamer and Savage that he wouldn't send a guide to see them safely back to Jamestown, and Hamer responded that it would essentially end the peace if he didn't. Wahun Seneca didn't speak with Hamer for the rest of the afternoon, and later he told them that he'd give him a guide, but he came with a specific list of objects that he wanted to trade for, a list specific enough that he wanted Hamer to write it down. It wasn't the objects that were important. That was the last remaining aspect of the English relationship that Wahoon Seneca could exert any control over whatsoever. He was showing, in defeat, the same dedication to not showing weakness that John Smith had shown as a prisoner so many years before. And that was the last formal meeting that the English ever had with Wahun Seneca. The peace allowed the English to thrive, and the switch to more private property had also helped rejuvenate the colony. Dale had minimized the amount of time that Jamestown's longest-term residents had to spend working for the company, and this encouraged people to take a more proactive approach to their own welfare. Writing about the privatization, John Smith reflected that under the old system, Glad was he who could slip from his labor or slumber over his task, hard work bringing no individual improvement or comfort to a life already full of peril and pain. Hamer echoed the sentiment, saying, When our people were fed out of the common store and labored jointly in the manuring of the ground and planting corn, glad was that man who could slip from his labor, Nay, the most honest of them in a general business would take so much faithful and true pains in a week as he will now do in a day. Private property also brought some level of social mobility to Jamestown that would only increase in coming years as Rolfe's tobacco grew well and the Powhatan taught the English to cure it. When Dale returned to English in 1616 on Warwick's treasurer, It was full of tobacco, potashes, sturgeon, and caviar. Also on board was Don Diego de Molina, who had been a captive for five years and who the English hoped to exchange for John Clark. Molina's English companion, Francis Lembury, was also there, but Dale ordered him to be hanged a few miles from the English coast within sight of the land that he'd betrayed. Francis West John Martin and James Davies had also decided to return home. Also on board were Pocahontas and John Rolfe, along with their son and a bunch of Powhatans sent to accompany Pocahontas, including her sister Matachana. A priest and tribal elder also went, instructed to give a detailed account of what they saw to Wahun Seneca on their return, and Thomas Savage accompanied them as a translator. The company hoped that the Indians would increase interests in Virginia and therefore revenue, but they really didn't. They took the Powhatan around the countryside and they were all evangelized and some converted, and Pocahontas seems to have taken an active role in this. Pocahontas met the Queen, though interestingly John Rolfe wasn't invited to meet any royalty because he wasn't of a high enough class. Pocahontas also met John Smith and she chastised him. We don't fully know what about, but it seems from Smith's recollection of her words and from Mattaponi's oral account of the content that she was berating him for the betrayal of her people which she blamed on him. By the end of the trip, though, Pocahontas was dead. She had fallen ill, and when Rolf returned to Virginia, he left his infant son with some relatives. The Mattapone believed that she may have been murdered because she was carrying information and suspicions back, which would prompt the Powhatan to attack the colonists. You really have to decide for yourself whether you believe this or, in fact, any given historical account, but I feel like it's important to give you all the different sides of a story so that you can begin to decide. But, back in Virginia, though the Virginia Company was still poor, the colony was able to grow with the new peace and privatization. Dale moved most of the population upriver where the climate was considered healthier, and different settlements began to specialize in the production of different goods, whether fish and salt, or corn, or livestock, or industrial commodities. Dale was encouraging the creation of a market economy within Virginia. Ultimately, though, Jamestown couldn't grow without more people. 1,500 settlers had sailed from England between 1609 and 1616, but only 351 survived. The company started guaranteeing land ownership to provide an extra incentive to colonists, and Argall was appointed as deputy governor. This was enough to motivate the first major infusion of colonists in six years, and it was the promise of land which would be the primary motivation for settlers to move to Virginia for the rest of the century. Privatization also ended the problem of food shortages. Finally, a decade after its founding, Jamestown was starting to thrive. Slowly but surely, its economy was improving. And two years later, in 1618, for the first time ever, Virginia was able to send over 5,000 pounds worth of goods to England to repay the investors. Compared to the 50,000 pounds which had been invested since financing the sea venture, it wasn't much. But it was much better than before. In 1618, they divided Virginia into four cities or boroughs, Kecoughtan, James City, Charles City and Henrico. And a couple miles from Henrico, colonists set aside 10,000 acres for a university and college to educate Indian youth. Even as Jamestown thrived, though, the London Company was causing problems. Under a new policy, they were sending fewer supplies, charging more, and accepting only tobacco as payment. For the colonists, this meant that they were demanding more tobacco but sending fewer tools to help with cultivation. It also meant that a massive black market emerged, with smugglers bragging that they could recoup the cost of an entire voyage by selling just four casks of rotten wine. Wahun Seneca also died in 1619, and Opie and his brother Opichapam took control of the Powhatan, Argall had replaced Dale as governor, but after he was caught helping the Earl of Warwick use Jamestown as a privateering port, Yardley replaced him. Yardley was going to investigate Warwick's treasure and interrogate Argall, but the treasurer didn't return, and Warwick sent a pinnace to take Argall back to England before Yardley could interrogate him. Yardley, though, became one of the more beloved governors in Virginia history. Alongside changing London company leadership, Yeardley ended nearly eight years of martial law, and he replaced the laws divine, moral, and martial with a government based on magistracy. He also introduced the General Assembly, which is a legislative body which was the predecessor to Virginia's current state government. There would be a six-man council appointed in London, and a 22-person house of burgesses, elected by the inhabitants of every town and plantation. It would convene once a year, and it was authorized to consider all matters concerning the public well-being. The governor had a veto right, and legislation could only be enforced with the approval of the company. At their first meeting in July of 1619, the General Assembly considered disputes between settlers debated recommendations for relations with the Powhatan, ordered settlers to attend church in both the morning and afternoon of the Sabbath, it set the price of tobacco, changed the name of Kecoughtan to Elizabeth City, encouraged diversification of the colony, regulated against idleness, gaming, drunkenness, and excess of apparel, and drew up several humble petitions to submit to the London Company. The legislation definitely leaned toward the Puritan side with the emphasis on things like multiple sermons per Sabbath and regulating behavior. Yurdli's time as governor attracted hundreds of settlers. Sands in London had been trying to recruit the Leiden Pilgrim separatists to move to Virginia, though they were also considering Guiana and New England. Though the Mayflower Pilgrims ultimately went to New England, Hundreds of religious nonconformists did go to Virginia. Christopher Lawn established a plantation at Warris Koyak named Lawns Creek, which became America's first Puritan center. The first boat of women intended to be wives also arrived in 1619. There had certainly been women in Jamestown before, but this was a move intended to change the nature of the colony to one emphasizing families in a colony in which men currently outnumbered women seven to one. Jamestown had been a struggling outpost, a military camp, and a Puritan dystopia, and they wanted to make it a viable, sustainable, long-term colony. For that, they would need women. The merchant roots of this generation of settlers had a very sinister side. Many people, as we've discussed, came to Virginia involuntarily, and indentured servitude was becoming a staple of colony life. Servants were exploited, and trading them became one of the most lucrative forms of trade in the colony, and John Rolfe even noted that this practice was giving Virginia a bad reputation in England. 95% of arrivals in this period were tenants and servants. The first group of Africans was also brought to North America in 1619. Thirty-two Angolans arrived on none other than Warwick's treasurer. They had been stolen from Portuguese traders who were planning to take them to Latin America, but instead they ended up in Jamestown. They weren't legally much worse off than servants, though. There wasn't any institutional slavery at this point, and we'll discuss how that came about later. Non-English people were given fewer legal protections, but the Africans weren't alone in that. Foreign artisans had come from France, Germany, Poland, and Italy, and they also faced legal discrimination. In fact, unhappy with their treatment in the colony, this discrimination led Polish craftsmen to implement the first strike in American history in 1619, protesting that they didn't have the right to vote. John Smith had brought them to the colony, and they had been with the colony through its hardest times. They had contributed to Virginia's economy, and they'd been there longer than most of the newcomers who now ran it. They'd survived the starving time, martial law, poverty, and war, and they were still some of the only workers in Virginia proficient in making glass, pitch, tar, and soap ashes. They had always been respected among the colonists, and now Eleven years later, they were being pushed out as Jamestown entered its era of prosperity. They marched with the slogan of No Vote, No Work, and within a couple of weeks, the Virginia Assembly recommended that they be allowed to vote. The colony couldn't survive financially without selling the products the polls made, and they certainly didn't want to send any empty ships back to England. In addition, the assembly decided that apprentices should start work with the Poles to learn their trades so that the Poles' skills didn't die with them. By 1622, Jamestown had become the first American boomtown. 1,200 settlers now occupied more than 24 settlements. Some struck it rich, many stayed poor, and a huge number just passed through for a short stay. People drank, gambled, lived beyond their means, and tried to make money. They set up temporary plantations and temporary towns, and they went back to England when they'd made enough for a comfortable living. This brought people from all backgrounds and walks of life into the colony. The colonists were a less and less homogenous group of people. In fact, many were coming whose backgrounds were closer to those of the settlers before the sea venture. It wasn't sustainable growth, though. The London company was still being mismanaged, and there was still price gouging by colony officials. The economy was wholly reliant on tobacco, which made it vulnerable to fluctuating tobacco prices. 75% of servants died within a year, mostly from seasoning sickness, and landowners didn't fare all that well either. Still, the colony was growing. It was experimenting with various crops and commodities, and it was experiencing an unprecedented era of peace since the death of Wahoon Seneca. A peace treaty signed between Girdley and Opikanganu allowed Indians to freely enter and leave the English towns. They traded for Indian land and they rapidly expanded English land ownership to over 10,000 acres. Opikanganu openly courted English leaders and even supported them in a clash with the Chickahomines. He even visited Jamestown, which was something that Wahoon Seneca had never done. Opicongano allowed the English to open schools to educate Powhatan youths, and the English raised three thousand pounds for that purpose. Yardley and Opiconganeo agreed on a system where the English would build houses and set aside grounds for planting corn in their settlements, so that families chosen by Opie Congenu or his werewances could go live there among the English. This would allow the settlers to teach the children without taking them from their parents, and it would incentivize adults to stay with the English too. The English would also establish a college for Indian children, and they would live together intermingled. George Thorpe was perhaps the best representative of the new era. He was a member of a gentry family from Gloucestershire, and he was closely connected to the Berkeley family who had led the region since the Norman conquest of England. The same family had set up a plantation in Virginia and would produce future governors of the colony, who we'll discuss later, and Thorpe lived on their plantation he represented a return to that very early idea of peaceful Protestant conversion. In England he would adopted one of Pocahontas' companions, and in Virginia he was so supportive of the Indians that some settlers criticized him for being too kind and unsuspecting of them. He personally worked to convert Opikonganu, and he even paid to have an English-style house built for him complete with lock and key. Thorpe blamed the English for the lack of conversion, saying that the English hadn't forgiven the Indians for past conflicts in the way that Christians ought to, and that the Powhatans were of a peaceable and virtuous disposition. If the English would show love and affection, the Powhatan might actually respond to conversion in the way that they had adopted other aspects of English culture. The English should communicate with the Powhatan, help the Powhatan understand the Bible from their own sensibilities and backgrounds, and they should work to improve the Powhatan's material lives, not just their spiritual ones. Thorpe even believed that obi was near to being converted, and it was about this time that both obi and his brother Opichipim changed their names, though not to English names. This isn't the end of the Jamestown story, though. There's just a little bit more. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first hand accounts and things. See you next week.